Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I am beyond excited today. Uh, I know I say that a lot as we come on the podcast, but uh, in the last few weeks, I've uncovered a new voice um, in the space of goodness, truth, and beauty, so much so, uh, get ready for this, he, he has a book called The Presence of the Infinite, The Spiritual Experience of Beauty, Truth, and Goodness. And so when I saw this book and I took a deep dive into his work, um, I just thought, oh my gosh, Steve McIntosh is someone that if we could get him at the podcast, I would be forever grateful, and I would just love to kind of sit at his feet and hear what he has to say on this topic. And so that being said, found his email, we swapped some emails, we were able to make a call happen, and I am super excited to introduce to uh, the crew here at Good, True, and Beautiful Podcast, Steve McIntosh, Boulder, Colorado, I think he's coming from today. Is that right, Steve? Yes, I'm sitting here in downtown Boulder. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for your generosity and joining us today. Uh, I am beyond grateful for you to share some time uh, with us. Before we kind of get going in our dialogue today, um, when you kind of uh, meet someone new in the world uh, and introduce yourself, h- how do you introduce yourself and your work in the world? Well, my work in the world is about uh, working to uh, facilitate political and cultural evolution. Uh, I'm the the co-founder and president of the think tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Our main focus is on overcoming hyperpolarization in American politics and culture. And that work on cultural evolution is based on a philosophy that I've been a proponent of for the last 20 years, goes by various names, but probably the most familiar is integral philosophy, which is a philosophy which focuses on the development of human history and uh, the co-evolution of consciousness and culture. Uh, We can trace it way back. Uh, Your viewers may be familiar, for example, with uh, the the philosopher uh, Pierre Terre Deschardins. Oh, yes. Right. His, his, his work on the evolution of consciousness and culture is he's one of the founding members of integral philosophy. It's yeah. not simply a Tehardian philosophy. There are many other contributors and great philosophers. But um, I became um, kind of recruited into a participant in this philosophical movement about 20 years ago. And uh, really for the past 10 years, uh, my colleagues and I have been working on this, uh, the political applications of it. In other words, hyperpolarization, which is tearing America apart uh, and, and threatening you know, the viability of our democracy, that's a big, hairy problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, from our perspective, it's resulting from our cultural growth. And the solution to it, or at least the amelioration of the hyperpolarization, can be found in further cultural growth. Mm-hmm. So what that looks like, uh, how that can be achieved, how it can be made pragmatic and accessible. Um, that's the work of the think tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Um, but as, as part of that work, I've, I'm an author uh, and I've written a variety of books on this integral philosophy. Um, much of that philosophy uh, is a spiritual philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's not associated with any particular religion um, or belief system, but it, it, it attempts to, um, to recognize that evolution itself is a kind of spiritual teaching mm. and that can be compatible with existing belief systems, right? It's not a substitute for your religion, but it can, it can shed light on, you know, whatever the focus of your own spirituality is. 
Yep. So, yep. you know, I could say more, but but I'm, I'm a writer uh, and a, um, a social entrepreneur. Well said. Well, taking on hyperpolarization, no, no small task. You know, uh, here I am in the real estate business helping people, you know, do transactions and you're taking on <laughs> hyperpolarization. Um, thank you for diving into that, especially with your work. Sure. It, it, go well, ahead. Let me let me ask you, I mean, yeah. uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you uh, came upon the path of the, the good, the true, and the beautiful? Yeah. It, Thank you for the question. Um, you know, I, I think that um, it was, I had a big uh, uh, die before you die moment back in 2012. Um, I kind of was just redlining in all areas of my life. Um, and uh, whether it was work, uh, just every, everything was out of equilibrium and not in healthy ways. And uh, finally, after uh, a few bouts of um, all sorts of sickness and different things that happened, I finally was able to collect myself uh, and really take another deep dive into some books and wisdom that maybe I hadn't looked into over the years uh, or had kind of put on the back burner, if you will. Uh, and eventually um, came across guys like uh, Tay Hard, Father Richard Rohr, Parker J. Palmer, all these different guys that started teaching me about the realms of the non-dual uh, within the tradition, uh, tradition I come from. And uh, it, it, the, the metaphor of music is what rang true for me. My life didn't feel like it was rhythm. It felt like it was noise. It felt like it was a bit clangy, not in rhythm, not in tune. So I had this idea of Let the Music Play, which kind of ended up becoming a podcast called Let the Music Play. Um, and eventually I found that maybe some of the listeners, that was a bit too metaphorical. And, and, and then I started to discover uh, all of the voices that had lined up over the years, a, a lineage of people that have written uh, on the, the, these ideas of goodness, truth, and beauty, uh, and how they can stir within us, how they can draw us, how they can pull us to the next whatever that may be. Uh, and to be honest, I feel like I've taken a dive into the goodness, truth, and beauty rabbit hole, and I haven't come out. So um, that, that, that's, <laughs> well, good for you. you know, yeah. that's kind of how, how we are here. And, and, and I think that, you know, the purpose of our conversation here is to affirm goodness, truth, and beauty anywhere we find it. It may not even be our particular brand of coffee, if you will, but that's not interesting anymore to me. I, I'm way more uh, curious about uh, everywhere, goodness, truth, and beauty is doing interesting things, not only in people, but in culture and society and business at large. So I didn't really know where to begin today, but I, I thought, you know, as I got into your book of the presence of the infinite, uh, maybe we could just walk into this book a bit and, and kind of give some of our listeners uh, a glimpse into how you've come to understand and, and see the world. And the, and the, uh, so beginning at this whole idea of a spiritual experience, which is an encounter, you write, an encounter with the presence of the infinite within our finite universe of time and space. So, so we're going to begin talking about goodness, truth, and beauty. Talk to me about setting the tone, as you did in this book, just right at the onset of, of talking about spiritual experience. Sure. Well, I'd say um, both having spiritual experience and finding ways to share and, and create spiritual experience in others is at least part of an explanation of why we're here, right? Of the purpose of life, of spiritual growth. Yeah. And, and spiritual growth can take place along many lines and in many ways. 
but certainly spiritual experience uh, is is perhaps the the royal road to spiritual growth. Yeah. And when we examine what spiritual experience is, or how we can get our minds around understanding it, uh, a, a way of describing it is as um, the, the 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 kind of the temporary or fleeting. Uh, experience of a glimpse of perfection, a glimpse of the infinite, right? And I don't just mean the mathematical infinite. I'm talking about the metaphysical infinite with the idea that our universe of time and space, right? It had a beginning, it's continuing, it's evolving. But uh, again, using a theological construct that the, the, the finite became a part of the infinite 13.8 13.8 billion years ago with the emergence of the Big Bang and, you know, perhaps elsewhere and other times and places too. But, but there, there's this, this bubble of time, which is emerged within eternity, right? Uh, a bubble of space, which is emerged within infinity. Mm-hmm. And it's in this place where in a sense, the infinite, the non-dual, you know, the, the complete unity has been partially removed to create a space for growth. And so this growth, this, this spiritual journey, both for ourselves as individuals in our short life on earth and for the larger journey of humanity toward a more functional world that works for everyone, toward a more evolved culture, toward a more beautiful, true and good uh, you know, social situation, um, I think the, the, this framing of, of the idea that we're in this finite world and we're conditioned by time and we're, we're mortal creatures, but we can experience, we can get fleeting glimpses of, of this underlying infinite, right? That which is uh, the ever-present origin, right? The center and circumference, it bleeds through into this realm of time. Yeah. So, so just to say one more thing, and that is, one of the ways we can think about it is that it takes the infinite to see the infinite. And, and, and so that leads to the conclusion that that, that, that because we are, again, using a theological frame, indwelt by spirit, mm-hmm. right? Because inside of us is this kernel of divinity. That's a kind of little, you know, sort of self-similar fragment of the infinite that serves as the core of our higher self. And it's through that, the freedom that comes from our possession of that, that we can have a spiritual experience. We can perceive you know, glimpses of the beautiful and the true and the good, which are, um, you know, they're not permanent. They're, they're just like electricity. You know, the infinite is fleeting. It's always moving. It's always perceived as it's improving things. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to that idea, you know, philosophically. But that's essentially what the beautiful, the true and the good are, is that they're philosophical concepts, but that they're a, they constitute a spiritual teaching, which l- lends itself to both a spiritual practice and a deep, deep levels of, of spiritual experience. So there's a lot to unpack there, but, but that's whole, yes, beginning. Yeah. Yes, a whole lot to unpack. To, uh, take me back. It takes the infinite to see the infinite. Did I hear you say that right? right. Yes. So, so we have, as humans, I uh, um, assert, and many uh, sensitive thinkers throughout history would uh, agree, that, hu- that humans have a relative degree of free will. That is, in between the, the in- intensive deterministic influences of our evolutionary psychology, you know, certainly our body and our mammalian history, all that influences how we think and how what we can perceive. And of course, we have the society 
that, that thinks our thoughts for us, right? That, that, that these sort of collective worldviews determine us in many ways. But in between the physical determination of our biology and the cultural determination of our society is this tiny window of freedom, right? Abraham Maslow, the developmental psychologist, even said that as people, the more self-actualized someone becomes, the more free their will becomes. Mm. So again, this is not absolute free will, it's constrained and, and contained, but it's this freedom, this freedom to always imagine how things could be better that gives us a clue as to what gives us the ability to perceive the beautiful, the true, and the good. I mean, if you think about goodness, that is your free will is an organ of perception for the good because a more, you can't make a moral choice, it can't be moral unless you could do otherwise. So in other words, free will is bound up with our ability to experience these intrinsic values. And, and that's a, a way of pointing to the fact that this kernel of freedom that, that opens up our ability to, to, to perceive the infinite, that this is as a result of being indwelt with the spirit. Mm, well, wow. love that. Um, maybe it would be a good little, uh, take, take an off ramp for just a couple seconds to dive into um, a little intro into evolutionary spirituality. Because um, this is a uh, this is an incredibly beautiful idea. Probably some of our listeners maybe have never uh, experienced or been told about this way of understanding spirituality. I also want to kind of put it right next to integral spirituality. A lot of us are familiar with Ken Wilber. I know you've mentioned him, and that your views on this kind of differ a little bit from his. But but I guess hold my hand on talking about the evolution of spirituality because this is a um, this is a huge idea and one that I, I really kind of wanted to dig into for a bit with you this today great sure well there are you know competing descriptions of what evolutionary spirituality is uh, some of them are rather new age and while you know there are elements of progressive spirituality that we want to carry forward and honor there's all kinds of magical thinking uh, associated with that 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 we would, at least those of us who advocate uh, a more integral version of evolutionary spirituality, would want to distinguish ourselves from. But the basic idea is there's a massive new truth which has entered the consciousness of humanity over, like, really just the last 50 or 60 years. And that is that the universe as a whole can be understood as the process of evolution itself, right? So the fact that the universe is only, at least our universe of time and space, is only 13.8 billion years old, right? There's all kinds of mathematical equations and pillars of evidentiary science that indicate that something happened. This big bang is a real thing and it marks the beginning of time or at least our bubble of time. Yeah. And so right after the big bang, there was nothing but the debris of that gigantic explosion, hydrogen gas, a little bit of a few helium atoms, basically just hydrogen atoms in, in, in this kind of extended space that was it. And yet, in, in, in ways that are, that are not fully understood by science, uh, over the last 13.8 billion years, something more keeps coming from something less, right? We start off with hydrogen and we end up with, you know, human civilization. That, that's, that's amazing. And we want to try to explain that naturally, mm -hmm. as, as much natural explanation as we can bring. That's great. So, so there, this, this structure of evolutionary emergence, whereby something more keeps coming from something less, it has three major phases, at least, right? The first is cosmological evolution, right? The evolution of, of, of 
the microevolution of the atoms, right? The emergence of the periodic table of elements, which is a little bit like the fossil record yep. of cosmological evolution, right? It occurs at a micro scale of atoms. It also occurs at the macro scale with, um, you know, galaxies and planets and solar systems. So we have this uh, evolution from hydrogen gas that fills out this physical universe. And then a kind of a second big bang occurs, right? Life. It's, it's it, with the emergence of life, something new enters the universe. We can almost think about it as like a new law of physics because life is, uh, it defies the laws of physics. It's a river that runs uphill. Mm -hmm. And the major thing that, that separates life from non-life is that life is matter that chooses. Life chooses, life strives to survive and reproduce. So with the emergence of the biosphere on planet Earth and likely elsewhere throughout the universe, a new phase of evolution, a new domain of development in second which big new bang, techniques occur. Yeah, yep. second big bang. Holmes Ralston uh, has a book, The Three Big Bangs, where he talks about this, published by Columbia University. So then, of course, if we, if we think in those terms as cosmological evolution, then biological evolution, building, I mean, it's still working with the building blocks of matter on a planet, all brought forth by, you know, the physiological evolution of matter. But now we have the evolution of life, and that adds this purpose to survive and reproduce, right, which is new. Uh, matter doesn't have a choice. It doesn't have a, a, a goal. It can't fail to achieve its goal, right? But but life can. So life's new, and it, and it creates this new domain. And after, I don't know, three and a half billion years or so, life continues to complexify. Something more keeps coming from something less until we get to the third big bang, which is the emergence of humanity. And even though we're physical beings that have these mammalian biological bodies, we likewise, just like life, creates a new domain of development. Human consciousness and culture, human history, creates a new domain of development, which uses a different technique of development, right? Instead of actual natural selection, like in biology, it's actual selection, like people are trying to improve their conditions. And sometimes they make things worse, but oftentimes these efforts to evolve the cultural circumstances make for a, um, a, a more, uh, a society that's more complex, a society that, that meets more people's needs, a society that can solve problems more effectively. And, and, you know, just like there's steps in cosmological and steps in biological evolution, there are steps in cultural evolution or historical evolution. And we can see these as worldviews, um, which, uh, which are kind of sets of values. We can think of the evolution of human history through these worldview stages as a kind of, these are like octaves mm -hmm. of the beautiful, the true, and the good, right? Values cohere in sets. They define a horizon of improvement that's relative to the life conditions. So if life conditions are basic survival, then there's one set of values that can improve those conditions. But as those conditions become ameliorated, then we awaken to a new set of needs, which <laughs> corresponds to a new set of values, a new horizon of improvement. And this is one of the ways of understanding how the evolution of history is real evolution. It's not just an analogy. It can't be conflated with biological evolution. It's, it's, it's a third thing, a third big bang. But what ties all these various forms of evolution together since the big bang is that this is a structure of evolutionary emergence like Russian dolls. And we as humans, each human body is in some ways a, a microcosmic expression of the whole. Right. So so the, the, the hydrogen atoms 
are only created in the universe one time. They appear with the Big Bang. All the hydrogen in the universe emerged with the Big Bang, and there's been no hydrogen created since. And they're a big part yet, of our body. Hydrogen is the, one of the most numerous atoms, right? Water is the main ingredient, and there's two hydrogen atoms per water molecule. So the most numerous atoms in our body are hydrogen. And that's in a way we can see how this emergence of the Big Bang, the emergence of hydrogen, creates a foundational level of emergence upon which all the other sequences of development are rest. So we can see this trajectory of evolution. We can see how uh, something more, I mean, in general terms, means that there is positive creativity. Hmm. And, And wherever there's positive creativity, there's value being created. So one of the things that when we begin to appreciate this story of evolution, this incredible narrative that science has so recently disclosed to us, we can begin to read right off of the facts of evolution a profound spiritual teaching about the meaning of the universe, about the purpose of evolution, and about our purpose as uh, humans on planet Earth. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot more, but that's a mouthful uh, to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that. Very well uh, explained. Something more coming from something less. And, and, and I and I really think that maybe where where you go with a lot of your work is is this invitation to realize that that maybe the more that is on the horizon that that we're all longing for that we're feeling that we're being drawn towards uh, we are being drawn there via goodness truth and beauty you call them conceptual cathedrals um, well together I, they form a conceptual cathedral okay t- yeah so together they. For, yeah, so so I guess let's walk with that for a bit because when I read that I was like, oh, that is salty. I love I love that idea, <laughs> um, and and I think that like some notes that I wrote here just on that conceptual cathedral um, that they cast like rays of ultimate reality. That was some verbiage that you used. Uh, they're they're handles of spirit uh, and the great attractor for evolution and mm-hmm. culture. So all of that, maybe we could just kind of juggle with that for a second here. When you talk about the cathedral of, of goodness, truth, and beauty, um, hold my hand as we, as we take what you just shared with us on the evolution of spirituality, we embodying evolution, um, and that, that maybe a lot of what we're all being drawn into, uh, really we're going to get there via these three portals. So hold my hand with that. Sure. Well, okay. So let's start. Let's you know start with the brass tacks. What are uh, goodness, truth, and beauty? Um, well, first they're words, right? But these are words that name concepts. And and when you bring the three of them together and see how they uh, uh, kind of fo- they disclose each other, like they lead to each other. They they help express the other, right? We can't you know one word or one idea by itself really can't capture what what the the concept of the good, the true, and the beautiful taken together are trying to name. And so these concepts, when brought together as a, as a triad, they, they are a, a form of philosophy. And so the, the philosophy is a philosophy of values. What is value, right? How does it work? Uh, and and uh, we can trace the line of an understanding of value or values. Um, you know, values are what we collectively aspire to or individually. But the word value by itself or values, and you know, I'll use them a little interchangeably, acknowledging that they're not exactly the same thing, is that, is that they are, that, that it's a very slippery concept. 
that, that philosophers have been trying to get their arms around the nature of what value is uh, since, you know, early antiquity. Uh, Plato, uh, in some ways, his most famous uh, the element of his philosophy was his theory of, of eternal forms, right? How the, the good, the true, and the beautiful are, in a sense, the... the um, the expressions of these eternal forms in their incomplete or, you know, less than perfect expressions in the finite, right? But but Plato's description of values as being simply objective, right? Like, so it's like an, a, a beautiful person is, is objectively attractive, one could argue. But that, of course, um, was held, held sway as a, as a philosophy developed further by other geniuses like uh, Thomas Aquinas. But then that idea of values as being objective was uh, rejected or at least problematized by the rational thinking of the Enlightenment, right? Like 350 years ago or so, uh, Enlightenment philosophers said, no, values are not objective because you can never, people don't agree about what they are. You can't, you can't point to them, right? They're not in the physical universe, at least not in any kind of way we can get our arms around. So let's conclude the opposite. Let's conclude that values are entirely subjective. That, that, that what we value depends on our needs, our interests, our perceptions, and that there's no value in the world, that the only thing that we call valuable is a projection of our preferences, right? That was the, the kind of the opposite uh, move to, to try to make all values somewhat meaningless and entirely subjective. Now, sensitive thinkers for the last few decades have begun to realize that, that simply describing value as objective or subject by themselves is not adequate, that ultimately if we're gonna get, we're gonna understand uh, philosophically and conceptually what value is, then we can see that it, it, it has a, su a subjective component and an objective component. That is, there's something out there that's valuable that we're capable of getting it wrong, right? <laughs> but yet the, the, um, you know, the, the, the choosing subject brings an element to the value experience or the value creation that's an indispensable element. So again, that's, you know, that, that's pretty eggheaded, but to just try to bring it down, values are not things, but values are not just thoughts. Mm -hmm. Values are, the way I define them, the way I wanna to try to unpack them is that they are the, the, both the movement toward the more perfect and the pull of the potential of the more perfect, right? So Hegel defined truth as merely the movement of the dialectic, meaning the movement of history, the movement of evolution and its dialectical pattern uh, of development is, is what truth is, is that our, it's our gradual discovering of what's real um, by steps, by, by a constant journey of realization. Similarly, the truth you know, I mean, I mean, the good, the good, that which is moral, that which is excellent, that which is splendid, um, it, while certainly we can identify individual instances of things that are good, the good in itself is always moving. There's always more to it. Mm. You know, just like truth is a ladder of distinctions. As soon as we, we realize one solid truth, then that very truth itself points to its own partiality, how there's more truth yet. Yeah. And so it's, it's this kind of constant... Um, upward current, and that's how we can think about the good. Um, now, the beauty is very important. This, the, the good is, is really, you know, if we're gonna name it, if we're gonna, if we're gonna think about it as a kind of magnetism or as a kind of gravity, then we could say that the good is like perfection's plumb line, right? So the infinite, right, this idea of, of, of the infinite, the eternal, the one, you know, divinity, however we might wanna see it, that this is permeating the universe, 
and, and it becomes perceptible to consciousness, but consciousness perceives it as it pursues it, right? It's always perfection perfecting, right? Because we are in the finite, we are human creatures. We can never realize it in its fullest, but we can draw closer to it gradually. So if we think about these things as, as trajectories of development, trajectories of growth, the good is pulling us to be more moral, to be more excellent, right? The truth is pulling us to be more real, to understand what's real. And the beautiful is very important because it's less of a trajectory, less of something that we're moving toward as, as a kind of th this, the presence of the infinite at rest. In other words, to the extent that something's beautiful, that we perceive beauty, we're perceiving, according to this framing, the, the, the flashing glimpses of perfection, the momentary expression. So think about a flower, right? Universally beautiful. A flower is, is fleeting. You know, it, it, it's, it's, if you, if, you know, not only is it dying as a form of life, but it's also its beauty, its ability to inspire you and, and give you pleasure and, and, and stimulate your longing for beauty. I mean, if you stare at the flower for, for eight hours, it's going to become less beautiful, just like listening to your favorite song over and over again. It, 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 you eventually wear it out. And so this idea that the beautiful are, are these momentary fleeting expressions where this process of growth reaches its climax to the extent that something's beautiful, it can, it can, it can become, it, it, in other words, it's, it's, its ability to express the perfect has been realized. Hmm. So, so the, the beautiful is, is, in a sense, this idea of the presence of the infinite is, is best illustrated by a contemplation of the nature of beauty, because beauty is the extent to which the physical world, or maybe the world of ideas as well, but primarily, you know, that which is accessible to our senses, we begin to see these flashing glimpses of how things become perfect. And so that explains why the experience of beauty is pleasurable, because our sense of, of um of imperfection, our sense of dissatisfaction with current conditions, our humility about our own need to grow, that we have a beauty experience, that pressure of development is momentarily satisfied, right? That, that when you experience beauty, you're experiencing how things should be in their perfect way, even if only around the edges or just in a little bit, a little flashing glimpse. And so the, each one of these, just like, for example, uh, the colors on our computer screen, our computer screen can apparently, you know, demonstrate the full spectrum of color. And it's using just three colors, right? Red, green, and blue, RGB. And those three colors uh, uh, can combine and contrast to produce the colors in the physical spectrum. And so when we think about value as, as this, this, this drawing power of the infinite on the finite affecting us through our consciousness, through our desires and our, and our you know, that which magnetizes us, then we can begin to understand that the beautiful, the true, and the good are like the primary colors mm -hmm. of value, right? That, that, that all the values in, in, that we can think of as humans can kind of relate back to the beautiful, the true, or the good, or some combination thereof. And so this idea of primary values uh, is a very useful philosophical concept because it helps us, you know, value by itself as a word or a concept, it's extremely abstract. But we can downstep at one level and then we talk about the beautiful, the true, and the good. Then we're talking about things that people can relate to, but it's still at the philosophical level of generality that can be applied to, to anything. So everybody, regardless of their you know, level of development, finds some things that are good and some things that are true and some things that are beautiful. 
But as our consciousness evolves, which is a, a big focus of my work, what that means, but just to assert that as our consciousness evolves, we come to experience the beautiful, the true, and the good more completely, more fully. So here I can quote um, one of my favorite philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead, who was a major proponent of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And Whitehead actually defined evolution itself as an increase in the ability to experience what's intrinsically valuable. So it's a consciousness-centric definition of evolution. That evolution is about the evolution of consciousness overall. That's the center of it. And as consciousness evolves, it, it, it's able to take in or perceive or connect with a wider spectrum of value. And, and that's one way of conceiving the evolution of consciousness and culture is expanding the scope of what people can value according to this Whiteheadian conception of what evolution is really all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that um, so well said. Uh, it's, it rang so true on this idea of the evolution of consciousness. Trust me, there's folks that I've crossed paths with. When you bring up the idea of an evolution of consciousness, they look at you kind of like a deer in the headlights, right? But my own personal experience, I don't think I can put it any better way than all I can tell you is the capacity has grown <laughs> to move towards and be drawn into goodness, truth, and beauty. I can't think of a better way to break down the essence of what we're getting at when we talk about evolutionary spirituality, evolution of our consciousness. Right, so let me just defend that for a second, right? So how can we say that, that one person or one culture is more evolved than another, right? That sounds like a dangerous kind of hierarchy. Yep, yep. And, and I, would, I would say that it's certainly not, we're not describing a linear trajectory where, you know, that, that is, there's, there's absolute more evolved and less evolved. But if we think about our, our human culture, one of the lines of development that tracks right with the evolution of morality is the conception of those that are worthy of moral consideration, right? So in human history, we see that, that uh, you know, in, in early, early tribal situations, those who are worthy of moral consideration are one's blood kin, hmm. right? Because, the, you know, the other tribe's trying to kill you, right? So they're the enemy. And, but then as uh, the world's great religious civilizations emerge, then the circle of moral concern is extended to include at least everyone who's in your same religion, right? So the enemy is not just your people who have a different, you know, uh, uh, family than you. It's, it's people who have a different religion, you know, the infidels. But even though, you know, the, the, the sort of the kinship-centric move to an ethnocentric or, or religion-centric move is something that we may look down upon now. In, in the course of human history, that was a major advance, yeah. right? It allowed for much larger league. groups of people yeah. to be brought together, right? And civilization to begin. Now, as, as human uh, culture and consciousness have evolved, the circle of concern, those who are worthy of moral consideration, can, you know, is grown from beyond those who share the same religion or those who share the same nationality to all sentient beings, right? That's a major growth of morality by which we can point to um, uh, uh, a line of evolution and culture, right? The line of, of goodness as a form of development. Truth, similarly, Right. So, you know, there, there are certainly some truths indigenous cultures had, which we've lost. Right. They knew some things that we you know, would do well to discover. I want to honor all that. Yeah. But at the same time, um, the, 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 the evolution of truth as a line within human history uh, has improved the con human condition immensely. Right. I mean, scientific medicine by itself, the untold lives and, and anguish that that has helped overcome. That's a major improvement of the human condition. 
right? And so we, you know, we move from scientific objective truth to kind of more postmodern subjective estimates of truth. Now we're trying to reclaim both in a more holistic estimate that allows for both objective and subjective dimensions of what's true. But even though there are bigger problems today and all kinds of new uh, challenges that have emerged as a result of our growth, um, I would argue that uh, further growth, uh, further evolution, a further expansion of what we can value, um, a wider conception of morality and a deeper connection to reality through a greater idea of truth, these are all ways that this third domain of evolution, this, this evolution of, of consciousness and culture is uh, progressing and this role of value as, a, as a, a, a magnetic attractor or as a kind of gravity that's pulling us uh, toward um, more evolved states and stages, that this is something that um, we can begin to see more clearly than ever before and that truth by itself. So let me just say one more thing and that is in the same way that the emergence of you know, modernity and science right in the enlightenment gave us new powers to understand and to see into the physical universe, which led to scientific medicine, as I said, and you know, other uh, improvements of the human condition, albeit with new problems. Um, now that we're beginning to understand this through this evolutionary understanding of, of consciousness and culture, where it's opening up a new ability to recognize and understand the we space, right? The, the inner subjective cultural space and the promise of that is that we can create a kind of social medicine that can help heal the wounds of history mm. and help overcome the hyperpolarization that's uh, acting to, you know, as a decay on our on our civilization. So, you know, there, there's the, the, the beautiful, the true and the good have more to say in the evolution <laughs> of the universe and um, our ability to connect with them and to recognize their power is a, is a big part of what the next step is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. And, and, and I think something more from something less there, there's just a handful of these little snippets that i have that i've i'm, I'm totally hijacking from you by the way uh but they're they've been very helpful as, as i kind of just kind of wrestle with some of this on my own um maybe as 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 we move into the realm of morphing into and maybe that's bad bad word choice but but moving towards uh something more from something less the phrase transcend and include happens a lot within, you know, some of the circles that we've had here on the podcast. Talk about how um, that evolutionary process honors the good, true, and the beautiful, right? Like it, it actually brings along, it's almost like a, a litmus test on was that good, was that true, was that beautiful, and it, and it brings it along. It doesn't just throw it away. It doesn't just say we're, we're, we're leaving that realm and we're moving into something new and we're forgetting everything that's behind us. We're actually moving into the next realm uh, and bringing along goodness, truth, and beauty so that they can continue to have something to say. It, it, did I, am, I, am I getting at that right? Sure, yeah, that's a great, um, great question, great opening. So I, I mentioned earlier in terms of the evolutionary spirituality, um, one of the, um, the, the teachings within this larger body of spiritual teaching, which we can read right off of what we now understand about the evolution of the universe, is what I call the structure of emergence, right? So we start with hydrogen, we have the periodic table, we have the tree of life, we have human history, and, and this something more when in, in, in almost all circumstances, when it becomes sustainable, when the something more creates a platform for the next something more, then we create, we see how this structure of emergence is like Russian dolls, like it's nested, 
mm-hmm. right? So that that when when sustainable forms of evolution that can lead to further evolution are are using, they're taking up and using the the the, the value that's created at every level, right? So like just like I mentioned, we're taking up and using the value that was created with the emergence of the hydrogen atom, right? And every atom since, and every uh, form of life since, embodying that that we can see how these 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 nested russian dolls or these levels of emergence in the larger picture um each level when it gets it right both transcends uh the level that came before but also includes it, it evolution always ex- you know builds on itself right mm-hmm. extending from within itself um and 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 using taking up and using that which came before and so there's inevitable pathologies that go with this process right so if you fail to transcend you know, in a universe of entropy, ultimately we can't stand still. We have to keep growing or we're going to decay. So inclusion by itself becomes a reification of the status quo, which, you know, sacrifices growth or, or arrests it. Transcendence by itself, where you're thinking you can just reject that which came before or start anew, it likewise leads to pathology because it's not taking up and using, it's not, include, it's not adequately including. Right. So ideally, if we're going to get this evolution right and make it sustainable and and something that can be built upon for further evolution, we need to we need to have both transcendence and inclusion. And that can be seen as a as a light motif. Right. That that is is true of, of the entire structure of emergence. Right. Transcend and include. And actually, this this was first realized by the idealist philosophers. Right. I mentioned Hegel. That, that they're trying to understand what this structure of emergence is. And they kind of boiled it down to uh, uh, this dialectical description, this dialectical process of development, which has been simplified as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? You have a condition, that condition is decaying, it becomes increasingly satisfactory, that leads to something that tries to go beyond it, to transcend it. And, and that can work for a time, but ultimately, because of evolution, depending on what came before, uh, in order for the, this, this transcended part to become stable in its own right, to produce a platform for the next level, it's got to include. So this dialectic thesis, antithesis, and synthesis is another way of describing transcendence and inclusion. So the antithesis transcends, and the synthesis includes or re-includes that which was left behind by the transcendence. And these are like the two legs of evolution, transcendence and inclusion. And just like you're not going to get very far with only one leg, you're not going to evolve into some better condition unless you're able to recognize the need to include the best and transcend the worst continuously step by step um, at almost every level. In other words, this pattern of infinite and finite can be seen as you know the thesis of the infinite the antithesis of the finite and evolution being the synthesis, right? The, the, the reintroducing of the infinite in back into the finite by steps using us as agents of evolution to pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good to evolve our consciousness and ultimately our culture in the brief time that we're here on planet earth. Yeah. 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 So um, off script in, in the land of hyper polarization, um, sure. what, what is the invitation? Uh, what is the invitation of transcend and include? What is the invitation of uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis? What what is the what is the invitation that your you know your life has been devoted to? Right of um, moving into this new we. Right, like like how how can we all um, honor that which is good, true, and beautiful 
in our own worlds, maybe worlds that, you know, of people that we've never crossed paths with before. Um, help me step into that. Sure. Okay, so we're using this evolutionary view uh, to understand uh, the human condition and its, its contemporary challenges and how we can be agents of the further evolution to improve the human condition. So when we look at culture, we can see that, that we have a new condition that's only come online really in the last 30 or 40 years. And that is we're the first culture, you know, us and other countries in the developed world, but America specifically for purposes of, you know, making our conversation not unwieldy. Within America, right now, there are three major blocks of culture, three systems of value, three octaves of the beautiful, the true, and the good that are online. At, and, and they're dialectically separated from each other in the sense that they're each trying to transcend the other. And so to name those, we have the traditional worldview, right, which is ancient, which has its own contemporary expression. These worldviews continue to develop on their own terms. But, but for example, you know, 20% or more of the United States identify as evangelical. For them, um, uh, this, this uh, religious worldview, it's, it's their primary source of truth and inspiration, which I honor, yep. right? So traditionalism is a major block of American society. And then we have mainstream American society, which really emerged with the Enlightenment. It's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And that is modernity, right, of this modernist worldview, which is in, it's in, a, it's in a relationship, a dialectical relationship with traditionalism. But in the 20th century, there was somewhat of a cultural truce, right, wherein, you know, that is, the traditionalism was transcended politically and scientifically, but it still provided the moral code of Western civilization, you know, to greater or lesser degrees for the bulk of the population. But then beginning in the 1960s, I mean, in my book, Developmental Politics, I trace it back to the 19th century, but, but certainly coming online in a democratic way in the 60s, a third major worldview emerges, one that could be compared and contrasted traditionalism and, and, and modernism. And this is what I call the progressive postmodern worldview or progressivism for short, as the media is now starting to identify it. This progressive worldview, we see this pattern of, of the, the, the establishment, the kind of the cultural truce between traditionalism and modernity, that's being rejected, pushed off against. You know, the, this progressive worldview is in antithesis yep. to the rest of civilization, right? For, for valid reasons, right? Modernity is not environmentally sustainable, right? Traditionalism has all kinds of ethnocentric racism, sexism. So there's many very valid reasons why progressivism is trying to break with this old civilization and create something new. Okay, but ultimately, um, that that this evolutionary perspective shows us how progressivism is dependent upon society created by traditionalism and modernity. If those value systems were to be erased, or if they were to collapse, progressive uh, culture would collapse along with them. We'd all re re revert to a kind of a dark age, you know, pre-modern condition. So progressivism depends upon, you know, the, the liberties and the prosperities and the technology and the wisdom, knowledge economy, the information economy. And, and it's trying to create evolution in its own way by, you know, pushing off against the negative externalities of the previous level of development. But of course it goes too far, right? It, it rejects the good as well as the bad. It makes the mistake of thinking we can just wipe that away. We can just safely rid the world of modernity and go back to, you know, local communities, you know, gardening. And that's a this magical thinking, right? It, it just doesn't appreciate the interdependence of our development, the nested Russian dolls of these cultural achievements. 
So, so, so again, following this pattern of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, if progressivism as a worldview, historically significant worldview that's emerged and come of age over the last 50 years in America, that that's an antithesis that points to the possibility of a synthesis. But that synthesis involves a dialectical step, a new kind of emergence, something more, right, from the something less of the culture war, something more that creates a new we space, a new cultural agreement structure where we can begin to see the interdependence of these worldviews and take the best and leave the worst, to carry forward the best of progressivism, but reject its rejection, to carry forth the best of modernity, but, but reject its environmental degradation, to carry forward the best of traditionalism and all the beautiful values that it brings while rejecting you know, uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and all the negatives. So this new synthesis is just emerging now on the horizon of history, but again, I assert it's a new octave of the beautiful, the true, and the good. And this deeper philosophical understanding of goodness, truth, and beauty itself is one of the elements of the new truth that's leading to this next step in our dialectical process of development. Hmm. And I understand just how bogus this question may be. Uh, but from the lens of spiral dynamics and all of your work, uh, how long for us all to hear the octave? <laughs> Uh, is uh, in, in the in what in your study of human culture, um, fifty years, twenty, a hundred, two hundred. Like, what do you envision as the future? Right. Sure. Sure. Well, first, let me say that I I respect the work of, of Claire Graves as it's been popularized by the theory of spiral dynamics. But I'm I'm not an advocate. I'm not here to, as a proponent of this spiral dynamics sure. system. I've got some critiques of it. Right. It's limited. So I don't want you to. I don't want your listeners to think I'm just here to talk about spiral dynamics because yeah. we're transcending yeah. that <laughs> narrow conception of the evolution of consciousness and culture, albeit including it and then right. in the, in the insights that the genius of Claire Graves brought. Yeah. But that's just one element of this larger body of integral philosophy, uh, which you know in, includes many uh, brilliant geniuses, including Claire Graves. Okay, so to get to your question. Um, the, the, the pace of evolution is not, um, it can't be measured with a logarithm. It's not a turn crank deterministic uh, unfolding you know, that's predetermined. Excel spreadsheet. Free, free will is, is, is paramount. Plus a lot of it is contingent, right? It's not guaranteed. Um, we, we, in other words, if, if it happens, it will be partially at least by our achievement, right? That's the, our purpose is to, is to find the, per, the the good by our own lights, so that we'll be we, we will have an, an experience an experience in the finite of rediscovering the infinite by our own lights, and thereby bringing an experiential dimension, an evolutionary dimension to perfection. But but to get back, when are we going to see this this new emergence? Well, as we look at the lessons of history, part of it involves grace. Right. So in other words, you can't you can't social engineer it. Right. You're, 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 it's a kind of emergence. And one of the characteristics of emergence throughout evolution is it's partially unpredictable. Right. The wetness of water that emerges from hydrogen and, and uh, oxygen um, is unpredictable. If you just look at those by themselves. So there's something that remains mysterious and unpredictable about when and whether really this next step of evolution will occur or whether we have to regress for a while before we can build back up. I'm not, again, it's contingent. However, I have hope and faith 
that um, that, that that we we don't need to collapse to a dark age. That that we we will find our way forward, and part of that depends upon the pressure of the the unsatisfactory or negative life conditions, right? So so progressivism has been emerging as a cultural structure for the last 50 years because of the, gro- the evidently growing negative externalities or pathologies of modernity, right? So it, it, it relies upon uh, this understanding of the environment, how fragile it is, and how modernity, uh, at least uh, you know, for, the, for its first 200 years of emergence, didn't really have an appreciation for the fragile ecology of the natural world and stomped all over it, right? So that's a, that's a negative life conditions, the, the degradation of the environment that calls forth of the progressive values. Another one is this growing realization that that men and women are equal, and that a, that a, a society that, that the equality of women in a society is, is a, like an objective marker of its level of evolution. I would argue, mm-hmm. and so this sense of of women being second class citizens in the old establishment that was a negative life condition that became increasingly. It's pressure built as our values expanded. That bothered us more than it ever did before. And that helped lead one of the value avenues of progressivism's advance, right? So progressivism still has more work to do, as does modernity, as does traditional. These worldviews are not done, right? They still have civilizing influences, evolutionary influences to, to, to bring about throughout the world and, you know, at different levels of development. But now in America, especially since 2020 and the upheavals of 2020 and the cultural, the rise of the cultural power of progressivism, how this progressive moral system uh, for good and bad has now, in a sense, uh, uh, it's garnered the allegiance of the modernist majority, at least, you know, smart America, the kind of educated class, even though they may remain in this modernist culture more or less. It used to be traditionalism was supplying the moral system. Now progressivism is for an increasing segment of American society. And, and that means the growing cultural power, like as you know, now dominating universities, dominating the New York Times, dominating the education establishment, dominating many bureaucracies, um, that those caring values that come from progressivism, they can only go so far without requiring another dialectical step, right? So, so because progressivism has has uh, floresced in the last 18 months more than it has ever before. You know, its power is now evident to everybody in a way that they try to ignore it. Now it's here. It's in our face. It's got beautiful features and it's got threatening features. And, and those threatening features are now becoming visible to the rest of the society in ways that they couldn't see them before, which means that the problematic life condition of progressivism's, um, you know, rejection of the rest of the society is, is, is presaging the opportunity to make the next dialectical move from antithesis, the antithesis of progressive culture, to the um, synthesis of post-progressive culture. But we're not rejecting it. We realize our evolutionary spiritual teachings tell us that we, we need to include it or our transcendence will be stillborn. So we're trying to transcend the current conditions of the culture war we're trying to create a new synthesis. We have a new truth, which is that consciousness and culture evolves, a new understanding of that. And we're using these life conditions, which means that it's, it's gaining momentum now like never before. So to put it in practical terms, we could say, okay, if we're, if we're anticipating when this is going to come online and become visible, because it's still relatively obscure, right? It's not recognized by the mainstream cultural discourse. So, so part of this, we could say, well, if we look at the emergence of, of progressivism as a worldview, 
we can see it in its in its inchoate or nascent state, or you know, because of proto progressivism. In, for example, uh, the Romantics or the Transcendentalists, right? The they're, they're transcendentalism, you know, with Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman, right? That phase of human history that was an expression of ro- the Romanticism in American culture. Many of the elements that would later become the the elements of of the latter day uh, progressive worldview were there with Emerson and Thoreau, right? Um, and yet it took another, you know, 150 years or more for that to really become a major worldview, right? They were, they were, they were sort of a, a, a countercultural voice within modernity itself. So maybe we're like the transcendentalists and it's going to take another 150 years. Or maybe using this progressive analogy, maybe we're more like the beatniks, right? The beatniks of the 50s were likewise, you know, proto-progressives. They weren't quite hippies, you know, they were still kind of edgy and existentialists. But many way, many, you know, many of the of the more prominent beats like, uh, um, uh, uh, well, um, what's his name, the poet Ginsburg, right? He became one of the leaders of progressivism when it emerged in the 60s music, right? Allen Ginsburg. So maybe we're like the beatniks and that and that this this kind of big decade of renaissance like we saw in the 60s maybe that'll occur in the 2020s or the 2030s it's not really up to us because again we 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 don't fool ourselves if we can socially engineer this yeah. or 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 just you know create it through some kind of marketing campaign nevertheless uh, the life conditions are more ripe than they've ever been our clarity of understanding of what this new octave of goodness truth and beauty is coming online more powerfully than ever before and so um, with some grace, hopefully there'll be uh, something more coming from something less soon. Yes. So, Steve, one thing I always ask our guests, uh, their first time that they come on here, is what's currently keeping them curious? Well, certainly the, um, the robust political debate that's occurring, right, uh, in, in the, uh, the pundit sphere or the commentariat, right, the, the, the culture war itself, both for its you know, the negativity of it, you know, the, 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 the way in which people see each other for their worst sides, you know, this kind of contentious partisanship, um, you know, all of that is, uh, you know, it's interesting to me, you know, not that I, you know, just like to see a fight for the sheer entertainment value of it or you know, some car accident on the side of the road. I mean, I'm curious in it because I'm seeing within it the sprouts of, the, the, the kind of the frustration or, or the, the wearing out of the old way of seeing that is helping people begin to grasp or look for or become hungry for, um, you know, new, new frames of reality, new, new, this new octave of the beautiful, the true and the good. So, you know, these, these um, uh, yeasty or, or, or uh, uh, high potential uh, uh, com- conflicting problematic life conditions that we're in here in 2021, um, are, you know, to me, uh, fascinating, both, you know, for, for just to see humanity in action as it fights its way forward, um, but also to, to see these little shoots, these new shoots of opportunity um, to participate in this next great emergence in human history, which, um, you know, I think is something that, that may very well at least begin to happen in our lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Last question uh, before we go. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh boy, what, what advice would I give to my younger self? Um, I guess I would say trust in, you know, your sense of calling, uh, um, you know, feel secure in your, the, 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 the universe uh, is here to, you know, the, the, the opportunity to give your gift, 
um, will come about. You know that that um, that that, uh, that that we live in this universe of, of love. That that there is uh, you know that the goodness, truth, and beauty are real, and that um, you know the my intuitions that I had as a younger self those are going to lead to um, deeper things. That this ladder of truth that I've been climbing. Uh, you know, w- w- imperfectly throughout my life, that it's actually leading somewhere. So, mm-hmm. so that's you know some advice. And um, you know, I would also say uh, that that the practice of, of of character development, right? The the practice of virtues, uh, that the development of our of of my soul, your soul, our souls. That this is really um, uh, this is what it's all about. And um, you know th- th- that uh, we're on the right track. I think. Yeah. Well said. Um, well, Steve, I'm super grateful for you getting some time uh, to come on today and share with us. Uh, guys, please go out and purchase any of his books. Again, I've, I've taken the deep dive into the presence of the infinite, um, but uh, I can tell you that um, he is a much needed voice today uh, for all of us and one that uh, I think will grant us uh, uh, better eyes to see that which is good, true, and beautiful in our lives, in our relationships, and our businesses. So, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Let me just say uh, in closing that um, the headquarters for my work as an author is my website, stevemackintosh.com. And I have extensive excerpts from all of my books. So people don't even need to buy the book. They can go and read lots about it on the, on the website, which then points to my other work with the, uh, the Institute for Cultural Evolution and the, the post-progressive post website, which we've created this year and which is really uh, coming on strong. So um, thanks for your interest in my work. And I hope yeah. uh, your listeners will, will investigate it further. Absolutely. Well, you have an open seat here anytime you would like it. So I hope one day we can have you back on. Great. Love to. Thank you. Thank you.